0: Hey, this is Shaunie B, my guest today. I'm going to open with his own words. I've been the chubby kid. I've been at the top of Tower One. I've caught a 10 pound tuna. I've been in the background of over 150 wedding albums. I've lost my mum at 19. I've driven cross country alone. I've been bitten on the nose by an ostrich. I've been stranded in Mexico with a remedial grasp of the Spanish language. I've learned you can save someone from a falling piano, but you can't save them from themselves. I've taken my nephew to a pet store. I've moved from the north to the south. I've avoided an elementary school fight by convincing the other guy I was Jason's twin. I've built many forts. I've swam in a C-note. I've been a bouncer. I've valet parked Rolls Royces and rust buckets. I've worked for the CIA. I've walked down the Seine in a downpour. I've learned to surprise myself. I've seen most of my music idols live. I've naively wondered how to explain beauty to a blind person when in reality they could probably explain it better to me. I've been married, I've been divorced and married again. I've lived in four different states. I've kissed a girl in the solitary confinement chamber at Alcatraz. I've produced a documentary. I've had really long curly hair. I've felt the frozen mist of the Galthus Falls in Iceland. I've talked my way into a fully operational prison in Dublin. I've been on set of two real-world houses. I've danced in old San Juan. I've toured the ruins in Athens. I've lived with nomads in the Sahara Desert. I've illegally fished with villagers on Lake Victoria. I've been mistaken for a celebrity in Kyoto. I've written and directed a play. I've had my own classic rock radio show. I've eaten the best meal of my life at 3,843 meters. I've picked fruit by moonlight in California. I've jumped out of a plane. I've wrestled professional midget wrestlers. I've picked tea in (laughs) Sri Lanka. I've moved everything halfway across the world. I've started over again and again. I've been recklessly in love. I've been my own worst enemy. I've been, and he is, my good friend, Jason Dutouris. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. That's it, that's all. Yeah, so we can finish up now. Um, We're here today in Jason's house in uh, California in Los Angeles, Century City. We're having a nice glass of sparkling rosé courtesy of Jason. I've been staying here with him for the last couple of weeks. Very kindly put me up, and we're going to hear what Jason knows about all that stuff. Which one should we start with? (laughs) I know the one about Dublin. That's people. A lot of my my listeners are from uh, Dublin, and you ended up going into one of the roughest jails in Dublin by mistake. Uh,
1: That uh, well, it was actually by intent. My ex-wife was half Irish, and her grandfather was wrongfully imprisoned. By the English. Yes. Not that I really had Like any, many of us. Not, not that I had any grasp of what that meant, but I had promised my father-in-law that I would take her there and we go see it. Um, and we ended up lost, walking like from Grafton Street into something that seemed pretty shady. I found a taxi and told him we wanted to go to Mount Joy Prison. Yes. And he definitely tried to dissuade us multiple times, and I was resolute. And then we arrived... And he tried to explain that it wasn't the prison that was the museum it was the actual like methadone (laughs) uh, operational (laughs) prison so i pulled the security guard aside and i said listen we're from america my wife's grandfather was wrongfully imprisoned by the english and so he didn't let us in but i asked to speak to his boss who used to pour concrete in Manhattan, was <laughs> tickled, he was absolutely tickled that I was really interested in getting in there and he gave us a personal tour. So, what was it like in there?
0: I, most of my friends in Dublin, including myself, have never been inside. Look, thankfully. But, I,
1: I don't recommend it. It felt like going into a like a colonial fort. Yeah. The walls were shaped in triangles so that people couldn't escape. Uh, the inmates were in cages and trying to climb up on the... The ceiling. They try to keep us away from that because they had just let them out for lunch or whatever they were doing. But he gave a kind of a historic tour of Easter Rising. Yeah. The you know it was just interesting. The best part about it really is watching people's faces years later when I meet Irish people and tell yeah. them that I yeah.
0: I've been in Mountjoy prison. <laughs> <laughs> it's positively Dickensian, I would imagine. But uh, yeah, it's got a pretty bad rap. Jason and I met uh, I think in two thousand and eight. Is that right? Yeah. Hence the rosé. Hence the rosé because we met actually in Cannes at the advertising festival and I uh, ended up working as a colleague of Jason's in JWT New York from about that time for two years I'd say but we became fast friends and we've encountered and enjoyed a lot of pints together over those years. That's, you're from, uh, uh, you're from uh, Long Island. Long
1: Island, 110-mile island that connects Montauk to Manhattan.
0: Jason's father, who I know well, hello if you're listening, I, he, he is a guy who sounds like and looks a little bit like sort of what Frank Sinatra would be like today. I, kinda, I dig him. Had he made it. Had he made it. <laughs> I'll drink to Frank. And <laughs> um, what was it like growing up?
1: I mean, I grew up in a middle-class family on Long Island, yeah. um, but it was a little bit felt a little bit rougher than it should have been meaning i don't know i think it was there was definitely a lot of bravado you're two seconds from a fight or people chasing people through the hallways or you know and it was suburban kids but it was like a a breeding ground for that kind of attitude and knowing how to handle yourself
0: yeah and school.
1: Ah, straight C student, probably. Like <laughs> the was, of people who like, I get on this I, show, straight C <laughs> student. Right? Like I, I thought C meant creativity, so I <laughs> went into. I thought I was doing well. Yeah, I uh, I wasn't a great student by the traditional measures. Mm. Until this day, I still think if I've done anything well, it's because of emotional intelligence. Not book smarts. Did you go to
0: college after? Yeah. What did you do in college?
1: I went to a small school in Virginia. It was the only school, because we had moved to Virginia from Long Island, and it was the only school that had advertising in any compelling way in that year. Um, So I went to a small school there. It's Richmond, right? Uh, Well, no, it's Blue Ridge Mountains. I went to Radford University. Ah, I was trying not to say it. That's how proud of it I am. And then from there, I did get into a great program for grad school, which is the VCU then ad center.
0: Did you always know you wanted to get into sort of this communications around business or?
1: You know what, it started with Matchbox cars. Right. Um, so I used to play with Matchbox cars. We had this uh, stone floor, so it wasn't neat little yeah. avenues between the stones. And I used to drive the cars through there and do my rum rum and uh, look up and I would see a car with this term, I had no idea what it meant, APR, and it was just driving down the road And I genuinely genuinely remember being like, this is the absolute most boring moment for the greatest thing I could ever own. I mean, all I wanted was a car when I was a kid. And then it turns out my aunt worked at NWR, which was the oldest continental ad agency. My sister Alicia was an art director and very creative. So I think those two women kind of opened the door of what that was for me and that notion that there was always something new and different in a creative pursuit. You know, I wasn't gonna become a banker and just look at numbers the rest of my life.
0: Some of the things that I listed out at the top of the podcast, presumably happened around this time when you were sort of between college or leaving college. Uh,
1: Well, so, (laughs) you know, there's this thing called your book when you graduate in advertising, right? Now everyone's got a website, but your book was like your campaigns and everything. I spent a lot of time creative writing between the tortured age of 12 and 13, unrequited love all the way up. And it, you know I guess I, I just wrote a lot. I'd wake up in the middle of the night and scribble things down. And so um, what I did was I did my resume and I did a campaigns book with my strategy and the work. Mm-hmm. And then I created by hand a little four by four booklet called Insights and Excerpts. So the whole 20 pages of it were quotes from things that I had written in poetry classes and creative writing classes. And on the back panel, I just thought like, I don't remember the moment that I did it, but I started writing. I've like, I just thought if I'm going to go into this world when I'm supposed to understand people, maybe I should understand what I've done. And so I, I put that as a blue vellum back page in this little book. And anyone I interviewed with, Thought that that page was like the single most interesting artifact. People felt like, "I've got a sense of who you are."
0: Tell me about the CIA
1: thing. Can't. <laughs> <laughs> I can give you. I can give you some broad Burn after reading. <laughs> I can give you some broad strokes. So my mother actually worked for, and it's sad now because she's been gone so long. I, I forget if it was NSA or NRO, but. When someone in your family gets a job like that, they go through everyone's trash, you know. So, well, out of the blue, she came home and had some program, and it said, You've already been pre audited. If you're interested in doing internships and projects, you can. I think
0: you the, because she was working there. Yeah,
1: that, yeah. I mean, everyone in my family had been, right. I guess. They had to make sure that you know everyone yeah. was on the up and up, and they weren't hiring someone who had alcoholism or espionage yeah, like or. My gods. son is a spy. Yeah, Russia. well, that's the funny part. So <laughs> I did through the internship program two years, and then that, it bled over, and I did some holidays and stuff. So I can't really talk about any of that, nor should I.
0: Um, well, so how come you didn't uh, get bitten by that bug to work in in, in that whole area? Well,
1: like I said. I was playing with Matchbox cars and looking at bad ads and I want to do good ones at a young age. It didn't seem on brand for me. It just didn't seem like the right path. And also, to be very honest, growing up in New York, you have a chip on your shoulder. And I don't think that I intended to see myself in Virginia forever.
0: Right. The... um, other bits and pieces. One of the things on the on your long list at the top was that you've been in 150 wedding photographs. You need to explain that because people will be going, huh, how did you manage that? That was DJing, was it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: so my next-door neighbor... <laughs> my next-door neighbor was probably eight years older than me, and he had a small DJ company. And so my mom negotiated with his mom that I'd be, like, his helper, which back then, for the first few years, meant carrying, like, 50-pound record boxes and running wires and taping them down and wearing probably the most cobbled together tuxedo there's a certain period in northern virginia where if you got married had a prom a bar mitzvah a bar mitzvah or a class reunion i was in the background of the picture (laughs) i mean we did three to four gigs a weekend and you know i look back on it and i'm like what was you know i had a great girlfriend and i we definitely hung out but i'm like why I worked most of high school through that free time. Yeah. But it it also matured me because people treat you as an adult when you're rolling in to a hotel or a bar, or a restaurant or someone's house and you're there to do business and you're, you know, you're interviewing whoever's getting married and what they like and what they don't like and do we have to look out for any crazy uncles or yeah. drunk people. Or, so um you know, not being very comfortable in front of a crowd, I had to put a microphone in front of my face and talk to hundreds of people every weekend. And I think that was a big help.
0: Yeah, all these sort of things. Did you start traveling around that time at all? So I
1: I could find it for you, but I made a list in fifth grade of things I wanted to do before I died. It's a confluence of things. First of all, you should know that my family all lived abroad before I was born. My father worked for Grumman, he was part of the team that put the lamb on the moon and uh, from an engineering perspective. And then he got into proposals. My mom, Caroline, my father, Louis, my brother, Louis, my sister, Dina, my sister, Alicia, moved to Iran. I think they lived in Isfahan and visited Tehran or lived in Tehran and visited Isfahan. And they were there for two years. Seventies? Seventy-six and seventy-seven. Oh, so they, and when, the shot, when the Shah walked out, they, they were like gone already by yeah, a yeah. couple months. So my house on Long Island had Persian rugs, mosque windows, copper pots, Mm. Persian fables in the fancy room Mm. where the Christmas tree would go. Anyway, long story short, you can't take a kid on Long Island and sit down every Thanksgiving and Christmas and talk about the camels you rode, the time you went to Egypt, the boat in Greece, when you stopped in Hong Kong on the way back. And have him be content with going to Disney World. <laughs> and so when I was in fifth grade or sixth, I can't remember, I made a list of things I wanted to do. Drive across country in a convertible was one. Find a cave or an island that no one's been to. Pretty sure unless I've been really drunk, that hasn't happened. Uh, how do you describe beauty to a blind person? Right. Which was in that. Anyway, so I've always wanted to travel. And every decision I've made has been with an eye towards that. So my first internship in advertising was in San Francisco during the dot-com bust. And all I wanted to do was go to San Francisco. The agency called me and said, we'll put you on some coach flight. It was probably like, God knows how much, $700 ticket or something, maybe less. And I said, can you give me that in gas money? This was my line and they loved it. I said, if you want me to advertise to the country, I need to see it. Yeah, And at that point, I'd only been past the Mississippi once to Wisconsin.
0: That doesn't count. Oh,
1: don't, <laughs> don't, get me, don't get me started. So I drove across country by myself. I had a tumultuous relationship at the time, and, I, and she wanted to go with me. And I said, no, I think I need to do this because I want to be in control of the radio. And if I feel like I need to make a left or a right, I don't want anyone in the car Whining. Suggesting, Like I said, I'm also a pleaser. So if someone wants to go one way or the other, I, I might be inclined to do that. And what I did was I ended up as an extra in a Showtime series with Lawrence Taylor, uh, dressed as a transgender person. I uh, taught someone how to play roulette in Vegas. And I think I gave her her first cigarette. She won 700 bucks. Went to the Grand Canyon and slept in it by myself.
0: You're doing a lot of this stuff on your own. Were you... Were you did you feel like you were different when you were younger from the you, other guys? Like, did you, because like a lot of your stuff is very, it's almost like you're sitting down with yourself and going, I'm going to do all this stuff. Whereas a lot of people, I think, you know, they, they kind of fall with their friends and all that kind of stuff. Did you have like a kind of an independence? I
1: didn't, but there is this weird.
0: I know you're very extrovert, right?
1: And you know you're old. Well, no, but I would still love to go drive across the country by myself. I love yeah. my wife. Like, I yeah. love Shannon and I would enjoy it with her, but those. Those moments, this morning, I spent four hours alone for the first time in two months. Mm. It's extremely valuable. Yeah. It crystallizes things. Also it also is time to write and refill the tank of uh, insight or perspective. Yeah. But there was this weird thing my dad used to say, which I hated, but I think it kind of sunk into the soil, which was because <laughs> he is a little bit Sinatra and Italian, Irish, yeah. New Yorker which is my kids are leaders and not followers. Now, when you're the chubby kid, not the smartest kid, and not with the hottest girl in school, you don't feel like that, Mm -hmm. right? Growing up, definitely was in there. And I felt like when we moved to Virginia, I just had a chip on my shoulder from New York, probably a little bit in the DNA from him. My mom was friends with everyone. He was always a big personality and you blend that. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think you can outrun DNA. That's why I said um, you can save someone from a falling piano, but you can't save them from themselves.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I dated someone who was bipolar, and I mean, I'd be crying, trying to help that person, and there was really nothing to. You are who you are. You're wired, yes. whether you know it or not.
0: Mm-hmm. So you're, you're learning all these things, and you're still, you still you you put down a whole bunch of things when you were like twelve or thirteen as a kind of checklist, that seems to me to be uh, strange for a kid to do that, you know, because I, I think, like, I look back at my own thing, and I would love to have had the foresight to do that, but I didn't. I don't think it's weird. I bet you I
1: just was a little bit more, not that I would have known this word back then, but into codifying it. Kids want to be president or astronaut or a baseball player, or, you know, God knows what, I'm sure they said it, you know, but I, I started to write things down again, I think, because, you know, my friends and I were probably not talking about these things, you know, and so we were talking about we would play Ghosts in the graveyard, or hide and go seek, or someone found a dirty movie in a bush. And that was interesting for a yeah. week, you know, we never, we didn't talk about like, how do you describe beauty to a blind man? Yeah.
0: The bit that Jason does in advertising is the bit that I do in advertising. So for those who don't know much about the business, it's the strategic planning area which loosely is about I guess a bridge between the client and the, or the brand and the, and the creative process and the consumers and we're supposed to know all about the consumers and all that stuff. This is the most heartless description of what yeah, I do I've ever heard. Yeah, well, I don't. Maybe, I think I, you should strike yeah, this I've, from I've, the record. I've thrown it out anyway, so I'm, yeah, I've covered it ad nauseum, as I said in some previous podcasts. But one of the key things about what the job requires to me, and I think Jason would agree, is curiosity. The people that we look to hire, I think, above anything, are the ones that are the most. you get the feeling that they're curious. And I think that you can see that strain in you all the way back to when you were little. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the only thing I would
1: amend, if I can, to that is it's not above everything. I think it's the starting point. <laughs> if someone's just curious, it's not enough. But it's how you take that curiosity and crystallize yeah. answers and hypotheses that make life more interesting you know I think advertising has lost its ability to move people um, but
0: anyway tell me about how you got into the business then from the whole college you know CIA traveling around DJing how did you how, what was your break <laughs>
1: um, so I was in the in the school that I was almost embarrassed to tell you of mm-hmm. um, and I was in the advertising program and there was a guy who knew someone I knew, and he was two years older than me. And I said, I just looked at him, having lived in New York, and I said, how are you getting to Madison Avenue from here? And here meant the Blue Ridge Mountains, a small college that even in Virginia people would turn their nose up to at times. And of course it was like a thousand miles, right? So I'm like, how are you taking this class and going to the only place I really know of where advertising's king? He said, I'm going to apply to the VCU Ad Center. So two years before I could apply, I had ordered the application, reviewed it, and knew that's what I was going to do. In that school, not only did I make one of my best friends and other good friends, um, I did a documentary with Julian Koenig, Bob Levinson, and Roy Grace, who all worked for DDB, Mm -hmm. who did the Think Small. Yeah, Volkswagen. yeah, think small lemon all that so as a 22 year old or whatever I was I got to sit with them Julian's passed on now I went to Bob Levinson's private island these are advertising hall of fame yeah. people and they were so generous and the nuggets they gave me did you
0: pick the, d- the documentary yourself so that you could get to these guys
1: I was told by the professors that the Volkswagen story had been done everyone knows it and so I pitched it as, I wanna talk about the personal relationships on the team and in the agency that allowed the best work in advertising, arguably ever, to be done. My pitch started with, this is the Sistine Chapel
0: hmm. of advertising. Yeah. So these are, this is a very famous ad campaign for Volkswagen back in the 60s, uh, Doyle Dane, Birnbach, led by creative genius, Bill Birnbach, and these are the guys who were behind the scenes. The lemon that he talks about, it was just a, just a black and white picture of a, of a Volkswagen, one of the most famous ads in the history of advertising about the fact that, you know, occasionally that you, you can get a dug car, and the uh, thing small was at a time when all American cars were huge, and there was just a very simple small shot of the, of the Volkswagen, and they were trying to sell the idea that... Net size isn't necessarily everything. And there was a whole pile of them. In fact, to this day, Volkswagen is still probably one of the top car advertisers.
1: Well, they have trouble now, but let me just let me correct one thing, and I'm sure this will be on the cutting room floor. But when I met Julian, um, he was flown to Germany with Birnbach and Helmut Krohn to look at the facility where they made them. Putting your ad or putting your product up with lemon over it in those days, and even now, would be heresy. It's saying our product is broken. It doesn't work. When you read the small copy, it went on to say that there were more quality assurance individuals in the factory than anything else. So Julian told me, you know, and this is like 40, 50 years after he did this ad. If you listen to clients carefully, they will speak ads to you it's interesting because agencies are positioned as we know better Mm -hmm. and we're just give us your stuff and we'll make it great this was a man who is in the in the hall of fame of advertising and he's giving credit to listening to his client because he heard something in what they said that he elevated and I think that's really beautiful and I think that's interesting and a testament to what those guys were doing
0: I mean, I think the headline is so beautiful as well because it's so easy to go no lemons, you know, because, because we have the testing, do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. it's really easy to do that press, that's safe. Yeah, there's uh, tension. And, in it, yeah, yeah, there's tension. It. So, I, I mean, the other thing I would say, apart from, you know, in my years in the app business, what you were tapping into here as a kid by going behind the scenes and examining the human relationships behind the campaign and getting people's stories and seeing where people stuck their neck out for better work, that to me is a thing that has also crumbled. You know, I, th- I think client cockiness and they think they know everything. Client fear and they want to try and put, they want to try and do the safest thing. This feeling that if we are in a, in a mass market, we should do advertising that looks like the category. But also within agencies, that the internal politic of companies has moved from something where there is this kind of camaraderie and fun and sort of to a kind of a not all agencies but a lot I think and I think that's oh. where that, that is where creativity does suffer.
1: I mean this is another one where like the CIA where I should say no comment yeah. um, I will say this I've now been fortunate enough to be inside companies like Rolex Infinity, Tylenol Motorola Nokia Under Armour just a number of clients to see how different organizations operate. And I think you have to learn how to socially engineer an idea. So now you're not just responsible, for finding it, mm. shepherding it, making it great. But then, and this was always true to some extent, but so I Explain feel, what you
0: mean there by social engineering. Like you have to
1: figure out how to create the environment for that idea to live. One or two out of every 10 things that an agency does is great, right? And we we live for that. It's like you're going to the plate and you're swinging the bat, cricket bat, baseball bat, whatever you want to use, (laughs) and there will be a grand slam in you. There may be two or three, but you're going to be missing a lot. And you're going to be missing a lot because of a number of factors. CMOs shift and that changes agreements. You're dealing with people whose jobs are on the line. Um, And so social engineering is about understanding the landscape, who's aligned with what, who needs to be brought in when. And it's a very complex strategy for your strategy, right? It's like the lubrication to your strategy. Um, Without it, it's a rough ride. And I've seen it done well and I've seen it done poorly. And I think that one of the keys to the kingdom in probably any business but ours is being able to do that ask those questions understand it anyone who would be on the other side of the aisle bring them to your side early understand why they're on their side and that takes a lot of empathy it takes a lot of work
0: we were actually uh i was asking you how you got your break so just at the risk of forgetting the question okay Uh, you were you were doing the documentary okay perfect uh, sorry
1: so Alright Basically When I did the documentary There was a gentleman Named Rick Boyko Who was the Chief creative officer At Ogilvy Mather mm-hmm. Which at the time Not a massive
0: ad agency In the world Yeah, oh, yeah.
1: They've done a few things yeah. David Ogilvy And the gang Um Again No comment So um I had a pitch To do the documentary For Volkswagen when we won it We got to produce it mm-hmm. And Rick Boyko gave us 10 grand to produce it. I got 10 grand to basically take a production team of people who have never produced anything Mm -hmm. to go talk to these luminaries who probably have shaped my whole industry view. Rick happened to be at a board meeting at the ad school. I ran up to him and I said, Hey, I just wanted to thank you. And I gave him a copy of the documentary. I said, I really appreciate the opportunity. He was really touched and just out of the blue said, uh, what are you planner and cra-? I said, I'm a planner. He goes, all right, I'm gonna have you talk to Tony Wright next week. Tony Wright was the global chief strategy officer. Tony happened to be out of the building. I met our mutual friend, Robin Bardolia, did a couple interviews, gave everyone my little book with the I've been that you opened this interview with. And after that, I was on the global team for Motorola. Oh. I wrote the launch brief for Moto. I'm sorry, for the Moto Razor. And basically had almost no supervision.
0: So you land in, you basically land your first job at a pretty senior level on Motorola.
1: I, I was, was junior, it. but the, the thing is, you hire good people and you get out of the way. Yeah. My boss had, uh, he was going to ascend her co-head the department. He was more focused probably on the sexy cell phone category and was like, this kid seems competent on the B2B stuff. And ultimately it it all tied together, but I was just earnest and drank a whole bunch of Pepto-Bismol because I was probably gonna shit my pants. And again, I was in my early 20s. I was empowered very young to run pieces of business that someone my age probably wouldn't. But this this is the issue. I never wanted anyone to know my age because I've always been younger than the post I've had or the responsibility I was given. When people asked me how old I was, I would say, how old do you think I am? And they would always add... Like a little bitch. They would always add two to three <laughs> years and I would head nod and never verbally say yes. Wow. Because I was so insecure that someone would find me out or someone would say, all right, little tyke, get back over there.
0: The... Um... The traumatic thing that happened—I mean, you—you you went to you went to uh, Deutsch and JWT and Crispin. I—I I, I don't really want to go in and talk necessarily about unless there's anything you feel we should talk about in any of those agencies. But the traumatic thing that happened in your life then was was uh, the death of your mother.
1: Well, those are different generations. So, um, so when I was 19, I was a sophomore in college. Um, mom was the glue of the family. Her gift was that all four kids secretly believed, and probably still and should, that each of us were her favorite. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how you pull that off.
0: That's rare, I'd say.
1: I really don't know how you pull that off. And God, if I ever have kids, I hope I can pull that off. She passed very quickly, within two weeks or less of you know, cancer metastasizing in her. I had to drive home with haste one day from college, four-hour drive where I'm just crying in my windshield, screaming, take me instead, that kind of stuff. Then I arrived back in Northern Virginia and, and, you know, within a day or two, she passed. And so that, that did change me. I remember my ex for a long time was like, I don't think I've ever seen you cry. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it just something happened to me. I'm, I'm very emotional, and still am, but it changed me because I I felt like I had to carry on minus something very important or guiding or valuable. And I haven't thought about it, Sean, but I don't know. Maybe that had a bit of spin on the ball for me as I went into the rest of my life and my career. Like she gave me everything I needed from her. But when I look at my siblings and I'm the youngest they all got 14 years, seven years, 11 years, whatever it was, more each of that wisdom, of that emotional intelligence, of that ability to be anyone's best friend and sincere about it. You know, she was she just had a lot, of, a lot of great things, you know, but then she had her quirks. Like I remember one time going into a video store and my brother had been using her, her card. And so it was like a $24, thing that she had to pay to get me probably like Land Before Time or whatever yeah. crappy thing we are going to watch. Actually, it's not crappy. It's a great movie. <laughs> Lovely. Um, and I remember her just telling the woman across the counter, does he look like me? You let someone named Lewis take out movies on my account? And she goes, you have nothing between your ears. And I was just like, oh my god! It was the underbelly that I'd never seen. Like, she was trying to get out of the fine. She- well, she was just... I, if, if she didn't believe in something or thought someone was doing her wrong. She was not afraid to stand up, yeah. which was amazing. But she's the nicest person I've ever met. But I, it happened like two or three times and it was always in a situation like that and I'd always feel like I had to disappear, like put my invisibility cloak on. Anyway, she, um, she's amazing. I think calibration between her and my father's kind of alpha bravado, I think there's some coding in there. I got a little bit of both.
0: My friend uh, Glenn Condi and I spoke uh, very early in the series of Pinewood uh, Shawnee be about losing your mother and he uh, he's a similar situation to you in a, in a sense that you know she died quickly it, it knocked the stuffing out of him and he mentioned this did you feel like for a lot of your life after that that you were that she was like on your shoulder? She was like that, like that you were kind of You you, you were putting yourself up to her standards or whatever she... she.
1: I think her standards are ingrained, but um, it's weird because when you're a certain age, you know, I had friends putting drugs in front of me and I'm like, is she watching? Or, you know, you're like looking at porn or you're having sex or whatever you're (laughs) doing. And I was 19. Yeah. Not that you only do those things when you're 19. But um, I think... It affected me in other ways. I was very stoic. I was very numb for a long time. It took me a while to get my empathy back for people because I had such a gut punch. The family is great, and we all take care of each other and care about each other, but I will always believe that she was the glue. Right. You know. So it, tw- it tears your worldview apart. It tears... The The comfort you have in the world, apart. And I went back to college. And college is... Uh, I turned the corner on the grades, by the way. I had this whole thing where I, every day I'd walk up the library stairs in exactly the center of the stairs because I was going in there to study and I put myself on like this rigorous kind of Ritual. trajectory that like I'd never had before in high school. And After her death. Yeah, because no one had, I don't know if I told you this, but no one had gone away to university in my family. I was the first. Really? Yeah. And so it was kind of like a big honor. My mom passed on December 5th, and my finals were two, three weeks after that. And I did not defer my finals. I basically said she wouldn't want me to do that. So I was I was batting like a three five three four five three eight whatever it was for means
0: nothing to me but anyway that's average. it's like B B plus B B plus right okay,
1: yeah and then granted I was never better than a C student yeah. before these years yeah. and I had one class that I was an A student in and it was a religion class wow. this woman was amazing and we always tried to figure out what religion she was. But she was, you know, like she would never tell you. She was agnostic on. She told you everything equally. Turns out she was an atheist. But um, <laughs> she she asked me personally if I wanted to take the final because I had gotten a letter from the school saying I didn't have to take any. And I, I, but she was holding it in her hand, and I said, Yeah, my mom would want me to. And I sat. I think that class was actually in like an old church or something, and I sat on the back steps and took it. And one of the essay questions was something like, John's mom dies of cancer. And like she didn't change the question, it was in there. And this right. was two weeks after my mom died of cancer. Or she knew. She knew, but she wasn't going to change the yeah, test of or the not. question. Not, yeah. And uh, I shanked that so bad. I was her favorite student, she was mean to everyone. And I was, I'd always sit up front, knew my shit. And I got a D in that class. And I kind of walked away going, good like I didn't know how I felt about religion and I it's a whole other topic and you know I was an altar boy never diddled and um, same yep made, that, made it through that gauntlet but um, I just I I don't know religion for me it became spira- spirituality not religion um, and that helped me not worry about my mom looking on for me it helped me say
0: she's not dead because she lives within me mm-hmm. that type of stuff so one of the things that uh, we didn't uh, mention in the long long intro of all the great things you've done i suspect because this is a more recent uh thing is you're uh, you've just launched a rum brand tell me the story behind that and i believe it's got something to do with ernest hemingway yeah and the
1: man well i was part of a team that launched the rum brand that's for sure we You're, have a bottle
0: of it on the table. Here, yeah. so, that's that you might tuck into later.
1: A glass canteen. Very cool um, packaging. So unlike most projects that I think you or I have been a part of, I was given a blank piece of paper, which is fitting, um, to come up with the Ernest Hemingway rum brand. By who? The family? So uh, a few very, very brave and very smart venture capitalists came to Austin and said that they had a relationship with the Hemingway Foundation. So they wanted to know what the Hemingway rum brand could be. Mm-hmm. And I believe it was a conversation that was had many times over the years. And the rum brand is called Papa's Pilar. Mm-hmm. The first thing we said is, if we put Ernest Hemingway's face on the bottle, we lose. Why? Because <laughs> um, it just seemed overly commercial. Right. And... This was going to be authentic. Fast forward through many, many, many months of research and work. I'm sitting in Bozeman, Montana, in a very tiny kind of hotel cabin situation. Patrick Hemingway, his wife and his daughter, so Ernest's daughter-in-law and granddaughter, uh, came to a presentation that myself, a gentleman named Neil, uh, and David, uh, we, we presented to the Hemingways. And I started that presentation by saying, this was homework for us, it's home for you. Mm. So let me know if anything feels off. And at the end, Patrick Hemingway is very sweet, very kind man, said, I wish all the people that wrote books about my father had done as much research as you did. The strategy and tagline is Never a Spectator. And Never a Spectator was supposed to be the sum of one of the most iconic personalities you know that I've ever studied in Ernest Hemingway. Um, when he went to cover the war as a journalist, he ended up in war. He would lean over on a bar stool and get into your life and into your head. I mean, he, he was not a passive person in any way, shape, or form. And the tension that we saw was that rum was for relaxing. Rum, you put a tropical umbrella in. Yeah. So we had to create something that had the bravado of Ernest. Who's Pilar? So Pilar was his boat, and Papa is what he liked to be called.
0: Anyway, Papa's Pilar, one of the up-and-coming trendy new rums. Seek it out. So just switching gear a little bit before we finish, we're actually just coming to the end of our bottle. Um, I did buy two. We are... <laughs> We are in a, a post-Trump world as we are recording this. Like literally a couple of weeks ago, he got the nomination for a president of the USA. By the time this goes out, it'll be well into his first term. But there is a veritable pall over much of America at the moment and uncertainty and fear. And I wanted to get your point of view on where you see your country going
1: from here I picked a hell of a year to come back I was living in Hong Kong last year it was amazing it's Mm. probably my favorite city in the world even though I love New York I thought it was a joke the reality TV maven Mm. having a having a go at it seemed like good fun in the beginning and then obviously he's galvanized a lot of unhappiness in the country and um, I am sad I hate him as a human. I am physically angry at friends and potentially some family who voted for him. I feel like every day that I see in the news um, the, the conservative, potentially racist people he's appointing. I, I, I hope that my friends and family who played their small part in getting him there um, are wincing. I feel like everything is, it's just like the global economy. There's flourish and there's constriction. And then, you know, it's just, it, it happens. Maybe I maybe I had a blind eye to what, what Obama wasn't doing well, but I still like to look at a leader and go, that person's a good person. I feel like there's a whole Darth Vader thing happening right now in the White House. And they I'm not happy about it. What I am happy about is I think I can, I, can, I can wait it out. I think my wife and I are happy with each other and our friends and our dog and our backyard. And uh, that's where I'll hang out or go back to Hong Kong. I don't know. But
0: um, that man is a horrible man. It's interesting hearing you say all that because I, you're, you're a much more positive guy than I am, I think, in a general sense. I'm Mr. Mooney but um, w- what's your view on a macro level on the future of humanity the world going forward Not, you know, take, I, you take know I'll, this, I'll, I'll, I'll just say
1: one thing and it's going to sound depressing but um, uh, Shannon and I listened to speaking of podcasts uh, something called Hardcore History and the guy never takes a breath I forget his name but he just goes on for like three hours about history in a deep energized way mm-hmm. the world has been always been fucked the world has always had bad people at, at war for whatever personal agendas there have been innocent souls crushed and trampled it's funny i have one of my old uh, chief creative officers at crispin uh, ralph watson great guy always has conspiracy theories and he believes that science fiction is made to socialize us to possible futures that are convenient for the government or an alien race. Or, so when I look at Black Mirror or, or I look at things that show how we become pacified and slavish to technology, um, I do believe that that's very, very possible. Mm. The good part is I know enough people who don't think that's acceptable. So there's possible and there's acceptable. And there's the tension. And that was the tension in the medieval times, that will be the tension when we have chips in our heads. And we just gotta let it ride and see if people who don't believe that that's acceptable can step up.
0: last question, what would you say to a young Jason Dutouris or somebody like you, uh, or even somebody who's just listening to this wondering what to do with their lives?
1: Hmm should have seen that question coming but I I don't have a great answer. I think um, I believe that the more you follow and head nod and don't challenge the more vanilla boring and unextraordinary your life will be. I see a lot of people just head nodding in meetings or you know in life and I like to shock people. I like to use radical honesty. I like to be self-deprecating at a moment when you don't think you should be because that's when people feel like they connect with you. So if there was a young version of me or a young friend of mine or whatever, I would probably give them a few ingredients, but you gotta, it's like jazz, you gotta riff it. Don't go along with everyone. You gotta have a voice.
0: And I've always shared my voice. It's a good place to leave it. Jason Duturs, thank you so much for having a pint of sparkling rosé with Shawnee B today. I think the key uh, message that I'm taking out of it is keep your voice. Make sure that you stand up for what you believe. And don't be afraid to say it. And we're at a time in the world, I think, when that matters more than ever. Thanks a lot, buddy.
1: Thanks, Sean. Good to see you here.